0: Welcome back to After Action. I'm Chad Hammer. With us today is retired Special Agent Paul Davies. Paul Davies spent over 20 years with DSS and is here today to talk about the terrorist attack on Herat in 2013. Thanks for joining us, Paul.
1: Thanks, Chad. It's a pleasure to be here. and honor that DS asked me to come discuss what happened almost 10 years ago.
0: Yeah, we're thrilled to have you. Paul, set the scene for us a little bit. What did the consulate look like? This was a uh, a purpose-built building that the government had made for us, or
1: no? It's interesting. It's actually a converted hotel in western Afghanistan, Herat, is the capital city of Herat province, uh, about 50 miles from the Iranian border. And the consulate was responsible for covering the four western provinces in Iraq.
0: Okay, so a converted hotel. How big was this building? Are we
1: talking about? Yeah, it's about six stories, a few acres. Uh, the Fence and then barriers were added to improve our physical security. It included a basement uh, where we had a gym, a safe haven, a tactical operations center. Offices were on the first and second floor, and then people lived on floors three through six. So the hotel needed a lot of physical security improvements, technical upgrades, cameras vehicle and pedestrian access control points, so all of those things needed to be done in order for it to be a usable and fairly safe diplomatic facility in a combat zone.
0: So you arrived in May of 2013, and when you hit the scene as senior RSO, you immediately assess and start making your own improvements, is that right?
1: Yeah, I was very fortunate to come into a situation where there had been experienced previous RSOs prior to me getting there, guys like Tony Smith, Matt Perlman, who really did an exceptional job in both setting up uh, the diplomatic facility, getting physical security procedures in place, working with DS headquarters to ensure the guard force consisting of third country nationals, as well as protection teams from our worldwide protective service contract were in place but you constantly try to improve the defense. So that assessment took place for probably my first 30 days and really working with the assistant RSOs who had been there for, in some cases, eight, nine months, almost ending their tour, along with our contract security providers, and then really understanding what my Consul General was concerned about. So that assessment, looking for potential vulnerabilities, how we could continue to improve what a lot of good RSOs and DS headquarters funded very well. And then the context of the environment nine months after a pretty major terrorist attack on our facility in Benghazi. Right. What could go wrong here? How can we apply lessons learned from that attack and make sure we're protecting U.S. interests and our diplomats?
0: And so Herat was an unusual post for Afghanistan as well, right?
1: It was. And and in fact, I believe it was the only standalone diplomatic facility in the country. So all the other provisional reconstruction teams, the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, all had a co-location or very integrated in with the U.S. military or International Security Assistance Force right. presence throughout the country, whatever province you went to. And Herat, for a variety of reasons, it was considered a safer part of Afghanistan for, for many years. The diplomatic facility was its own independent spot. And so we coordinated with the military closely, which was about 18 miles away at Camp Arena, which was an Italian-led regional command west base.
0: Right, but 18 miles is, is a long haul in an emergency.
1: It potentially could be. And part of that is a choke point, right? So that assessment, we identified a few things to make sure, one, we knew all our partners, both Afghan partners, U.S. military, special operations forces were operating the area. And then I asked a pointed question to my consul general, what are you most concerned about? He's like, I don't know how we would get out of here if the road's blocked or a a bomb goes off at the front. We've never been able to land a helicopter here. So the team and I started churning and looking at a a small patch of grass outside the dining facility. And based on some past experience I had in the military and getting some military active folks in, we figured we could turn this into an LZ. And extremist circumstances.
0: So inside the walls, you had yourself and your team was how large of RSOs?
1: We had five okay. on the RSO staff. Okay. Fortunately I had an intel analyst, I had people to man the Tactical Operations Center Excellent. with watch officers that were all extremely experienced. And I had three security protective specialists to look after the Consul General as well as some of the other diplomats when they went on moves outside the consulate to engaged with Afghan interlocutors.
0: Okay, and then you had this contracted Worldwide Protective Services, the WIPs teams. How many of those folks did you have in your...
1: We had about 100 of our third country nationals, primarily from El Salvador, that manned the perimeters. And we had approximately 150 Americans that... Did the protection teams as well as our own quick reaction force inside the compound and then designated defensive marksmen that we posted in key locations on the building to observe because behind us was a very large hill right great yeah and they the could high look ground down. is behind you yeah, yeah the high ground was behind us we had the main thoroughfare the main road in front of the consulate And that same road was where a lot of resupply traffic would end up hitting Ring Road and doing logistics throughout Afghanistan. And that was, again, 50 miles from the Iranian border where there were goods moving on this road. So we had really incredibly good camera coverage with the latest technology to cover those areas but we still wanted to see if there was a group that potentially tried to attack us from the rear and we had designated marksmen to cover that along with some technical measures.
0: Because not everyone at the compound was in security. You had genuine diplomats there as well doing non-security work. So you you saw them as a resource and made use of them as well.
1: Absolutely not only a resource but it was in their interest to be involved in both contingency crisis management response, and how could we best utilize some of their skill sets? AID folks, political econ officers that were engaged with the local populace. So, in the absence of a formal intelligence community presence, we basically expanded that network to share information, Great. but also conduct internal training on a weekly basis for first aid, trauma care, and conducting rehearsals, and actually to the point of full-blown emergency response drills, where we had simulated casualties. These folks from the embassy sections could man a casualty to collection point, could treat potential wounded, and then upping that intensity and realism by coordinating with the military to do medevac response and evacuation on that LZ that we identified, the landing zone that we identified. And that took place over the course of the summer of 2013, amidst a growing threat of broader intelligence that there was something potentially that was gonna happen in the region. Of course, we were coming up to the anniversary of September 11th, as well as the one-year anniversary of the attack against the the Benghazi facility.
0: Which we've known to be a common tactic or at least a common threat to have these kind of anniversary-style attacks.
1: Certainly, I mean, terrorists do it for symbolic reasons, to make a point, and having those plans and working closely with U.S. military, State Department, both back in Washington, D.C., to share information, as well as the consulate leadership and the embassy Kabul leadership to make sure we were prepared. And I think a month prior, there was actually a a worldwide notice that went out to, it was a regional notice, to about 17 different missions in the region that there was a general increase in the threat environment, not specific chatter necessarily dealing with you're going to be attacked in Herat on this day but I think it was uh, certainly the threat and risk was a lot higher and we need to prepare as such.
0: Okay so you didn't have specific intelligence that somebody was coming for you but you were highly prepared.
1: I would agree with that characterization.
0: So let's talk about the day in question. So you you were asleep and uh, what woke you up that day?
1: The previous night, Thursday, the 12th of September, was kind of a a farewell to the Consul General. She was due to depart in a couple days and her replacement was gonna be coming in. So I went to bed probably 11, and at 5.32, I believe, a a loud concussion and blast wave woke me up, kinda rocked me out of bed. Clearly, there was an attack, the alarms started to go off immediately as rehearsed. And all the RSO staff had staged our kit, our, our weapons, our body armor, everything in our room. So immediately we go, I go to put that on. Yep. And I'm up on the sixth floor, uh, right across the hallway from the consul general. As I come out of my door, I see Chris, going in Chris was one of our SPS security protective specialists the agent in charge of the Consul General's detail he's going right in to look after her so I knew that was taken care of and I had an entire compound and all the Americans to look after so my role was command and control and I needed to get to the tactical operations center which meant going down six staircases to get to that talk in the basement which was much more hardened but it had all our visual cameras communications etc so I make my way down there and I think it took all told probably 60 seconds maybe a minute and a half because shortly after I got there and the Tactical Operations Center is manned with our night shift team maybe 30 seconds later up on the big screens one of the guys says sir there's a van pulling up at that point we see about six people unload out of a van it was very clear coordinated assault the vehicle-borne IED approximately 2,000 pounds had detonated and less than two minutes later, a dismounted force is getting ready to assault the compound.
0: This is a common tactic, right? So the truck bomb came to the front gate, hit the gate, and it immediately detonated.
1: That's correct. So we had about 350, maybe 400 feet from the front hardline door of the consulate, right, down through... A warehouse area of connex boxes into the compound access control point and then another kind of layer to these drop arm barriers. Yeah. That detonates and again they're trying to blow a hole through that entry point. Right. And then the truck bomb itself came from the west towards the Iranian border. The assault force, the van, it came from the other direction, from the east, so it parks and these guys unload and then within a couple minutes, I think they had a time fuse delay, that van sort of ignites and explodes as well. Either a distraction because it started smoking yeah. pretty heavily or potentially they thought they'd have a second V bid. But at that point, the ground assault force of the Hakani Terrace are trying to penetrate the embassy perimeter and get in. And so it was very clear we're under attack. All the security staff knew that they had rules of engagement and use of deadly force. I think a call went out over the radio. I sent it just to make sure everybody knew, you know, that we're under attack. Deadly force is authorized, no questions. Not a drill. Yeah, and that team of our own QRF and the El Salvadorian Guard Force were in position to immediately start engaging these attackers.
0: So you had people sort of at the gate in these buildings while the terrorists are coming through, exchanging fire with our forces.
1: Yeah, that, that's an accurate description. I mean, we had three layers. The first layer of Afghan guards, unfortunately, we lost eight that day. So the truck bomb took out that outermost perimeter, which yeah. was certainly unfortunate. And, you know, I continue to feel for the families uh, of those that were lost. The next level, we had El Salvadorian primarily guards, and they were in reinforced containers. The truck bomb didn't make it that far, but the blast did a, a fair amount of damage. Yeah. So now you have the assaulting terrorist force coming in, using traditional military fire movement techniques with RPGs, machine guns, grenades, and they're looking, literally Chad, a couple feet and they're shooting rounds at the El Salvadorians who are behind this container inside that they were there to go in and check vehicles and right. use dog teams to search vehicles right. well at 5 30 in the morning on a friday thank goodness they weren't out there searching any other vehicles at the time so they had a layer of protection yeah we had a team of our american contract providers in a bearcat armored vehicle with the machine gun and then we had the designated marksmen on the roof right. that were able to engage over the course of the next 20 30 minutes and the terrace had cover and obstacles to hide behind yeah. for things that we had built, right, to prevent vehicle access. Right. That's what prolonged that firefight and engagement until we could neutralize the threat.
0: So, in total, you said there were six or seven attackers. And how long was this firefight going on?
1: Yeah, it, it was a good. 20 to 30 minutes as i recall and, and looking at the video but in addition to those six based on ballistics when the investigation happened uh, a couple days later and eyewitness accounts it was apparent that the terrorists had also set up what we call a support by fire position so about 800 meters away across the street from some apartment buildings near Harat uh, university they had set up a position where they were shooting directly at us trying to penetrate And so they were trying to support their own ground assault team, and we ended up eventually, the designated marksman saw them and were able to return fire and neutralize that threat as well. So it was a very complex attack.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. So an hour in, rounds have stopped flying. What's going through your head now? What's your next step?
1: Yeah, there there was a lot going through. Radio comms was very difficult and it really reinforced the importance of having a well-rehearsed plan, right? We had our compound defense plan, we practiced it, we looked at different contingencies. So individual assistant RSOs and others in the Tactical Operations Center taking action. I had been in communication with the U.S. Special Operation Forces asking for reinforcement within five minutes or so of the attack kicking off.
0: But the fact that you have these phone numbers and you have first name basis for all these folks, that's all prep work you've done in advance.
1: It is. It's it's relationship building, right? So that's not unique to what our team did. RSOs in places around the world, you get to know the right people. And if it's U.S. military, host nation military, and to be clear, six different afghan national security force units arrived local police fire national nds which is their counterterrorism intel service they all came on the scene very quickly before the u.s military could get there because recall they're 18 miles away right so we're coordinating that i know by the way my foreign service national investigator it's a friday At 5.30, he's off. I don't speak Dari Pashto. And so I'm trying to relay some communication with him. Again, a lesson learned. Make sure you have someone on the staff 24 hours that can speak the local language because that provided a level of friction. We also spun up prior to that hour mark, based on your question, a medevac. because. In addition to knowing we had serious injured or killed Afghans at our perimeter, we had some of the El Salvadorian Guard staff that were seriously injured from the blast and potentially a gunshot wound. They had gone and evacuated into our casualty collection point inside the consulate, but we knew we needed to get them medevac. But all those USAID officers, econ officers, they were busy running the casualty collection point. So myself and the security team yeah. could focus on defending the compound, which that was a, a force multiplier for us.
0: No kidding. So you had these folks also presumably in bed when this started started going off. They didn't wait in their rooms for rescue. They got up and got to work.
1: Yes, for the most part, all of them came down. They knew when the alarm started going and they felt the effects of the blast, get down to the safe haven, right. start setting up the casualty collection point. Part of our plan included integrating non RSO staff, right? So we had a Customs and Border Protection agent who was armed. And we had a former FBI agent who's with SIGAR, the Special Investigator for Afghan Reconstruction. So we integrated them in the plan and they went top floors all the way down and checked every room to make sure there were none of our American diplomatic staff that were injured. And then they set up positions to assist with security.
0: So help the layperson understand the scale of a 2,000 pound bomb even with three or 400 feet of setback, the building was still at risk.
1: The building was at risk. Water pipes burst. Some of the power were lost. We had generators that kicked in. Ceilings, doors were blown out. I mean, it was an absolute mess. But yeah, the inside damage of the building was fairly significant. But to be clear, State Department, OBO, and DS made some great physical security improvements. They put Kevlar screening outside of our window. So in addition to the glass covering we all have at every embassy we work with, we had an additional layer of quarter inch or so Kevlar to prevent some blast on everybody's window. So there wasn't direct flying shrapnel, which clearly helped save lives and and reduce the amount of injuries for people. Some folks were in shock as well, Chad. They hadn't experienced anything like this. So they're getting treatment. We're fortunate that a few weeks prior Embassy Kabul had sent a State Department physician's assistant, so he's there working with that consulate no. staff to help really manage that casualty collection point. And then we were turning an hour in to conduct the medevac to get the reinforcements. I think it was about the one hour mark where Navy SEAL team arrived to assist. They were dealing with unexploded ordnance because all the terrorists had multiple munitions, suicide vests on, and although they never made it close to getting inside the consulate, it was in a section that we wanted to make sure was clear because there was a part hole blown through our perimeter that we needed to start to shore up and reinforcing. And so, yeah, first hour, very stressful, but we had certain things to do and empowering the team and everybody on the team having a role to get things done without being told was was huge, right? People were just taking action and, and making things work for us.
0: So, SEALs are landing, you're evacuating the, the the casualties, but you also now have concerns, again, about a follow-on attack. So, your next step is to evacuate all of the, the non-combatants, right?
1: That's correct. So, the Consul General was obviously great in communicating with State Department leadership. The ambassador in Kabul, as well as Secretary of State, called in and she was talking about you know what we're going to do how we are uh, a decision was made that other than a few key staff her communicator maybe one or two others folks were going to initially go out to the italian base and then for follow-on evacuation to embassy kabul uh, yeah. for recovery and evaluation so that's all taken place and, and to be clear the the navy seal team drove in those 18 miles they brought in six or seven vehicles incredible enablers so they were able to control airspace right lock it down they were able to deal with the unexploded ordnance, check on that support by fire position across the street that may or may not have still been engaging us and so they did a lot and then prepped for the eventual landing a couple hours later of marines that came in for another regional command i believe out of kandahar and they were ended up staying with us for a couple days as we continued to defend and shore up the compound for follow-on action if it took place.
0: So at some point, you must have had a break in the action, or how long did it take until you had a moment to think and maybe contact family?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I didn't really take a break until my consul general walked up to me, and I think it was after we got out the, the medevac and the first group of our diplomatic staff. She's like, have you spoke to your family yet, Paul? You need to you need to let them know you're okay. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. I wasn't even thinking that. And so a quick call or text, you know, sweetheart, I'm okay. If you see something in the news, we're all right. Everybody's fine. And so that illuminated to me that, you know, not only do you got to take care of yourself, but you got to make sure everybody else is taken care of because a few days later, something similar happened. I had been running on fumes for three days, maybe a couple hours of sleep, usually interrupted thinking, did I do enough? And as the team, did we have everything set? And one of our contract staff said, hey, boss, you need to get some rest. You haven't had much sleep at all. You're running on fumes and you're not thinking clearly. And he rightly pointed that out to me.
0: Okay. So you didn't leave yourself, though. So there was an aftermath for you in maintaining a presence there.
1: Certainly. So coming up within the next six months were historical Afghan national elections. And As the only standalone diplomatic facility in Western Afghanistan, it was important from a foreign policy perspective and in U.S. natural interest to keep that consulate open. But we had a lot of repairs to do. And so decisions were made that the State Department was going to fund and DS would be involved in a rebuild of the consulate while we maintain a diplomatic presence. The RSO staff was reinforced from some folks from Kabul that came in to assist. We added some additional contract security force and a small key element of the new consul general. Now he's walking into this consulate that's been, you know, half blown up and under reconstruction that he would engage with Afghan contacts and a key portion of his staff would spend time at Camp Arena, that ISAF base, but also come in and check on the status. So our staff continued to work there 24 and 7
0: you also saw an opportunity to help the local response forces right
1: yeah so i think part of what you do is reflect what went well you know the issues to sustain right a lot of good things happen on that day but what could we have done better and so coordinating response of six different units and from afghans and then us integrating command and control and so what we started to do was work with ds headquarters and embassy combo under the ATA, Anti-Terrorism Assistance Program, to build our foreign capacity of our Afghan partners there. Many things have been done over the years with the mill to mill, right? U.S. military to Afghan military capacity building. And Kabul had done for years a lot with the Afghan police forces. But we really wanted to expand that to the security forces in western Afghanistan. And so we started that process to get them trained up.
0: Well, honestly, you've given us a great outline of the kind of best case scenario in in the worst situation, what other advice would you give to, to a colleague who might be facing this in the next week or month?
1: You can't do everything yourself. Identify your talent. Empower them to get things done. Supervise is part of your role, right? Never forget to ensure that all the items are done. But planning and preparation and building a team that's focused on, in this case, the survival and defense of our compound, absolutely critical. Look for any gaps and vulnerabilities and how you can address those, both through procedures, physical security measures, and your own actions to, to mitigate potential threats. Get sleep when you can look after your own welfare and those of the people around you. And I'm not sure if this is the case, but we made sure everybody that day got recognized. It didn't matter if you're a State Department, you know, direct employee, RSO, you know, the Contract Security Force, the Afghans that were there, they were all recognized in some form from a heroism award. Families of those that were fallen were looked after. And so you need to look after your people in a variety of ways. So it it was a transformational kind of experience for my personal views, as well as a little bit towards my career. It's really hard to believe that this is the 10th year kind of anniversary coming up. And I'd like to thank all those that I worked with for really helping out that day and being such good teammates.
0: Well, sir, that's an incredible story. And I really wanna thank you for taking the time to tell it.